This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with a former combat aircraft pilot about the North American Rockwell OV-10 Bronco. In the news, a federal flight deck officer allegedly threatens to shoot another pilot. Vans Aircraft is experiencing financial difficulties. The U.S. government is getting involved in the Schiphol Airport's plan to reduce flights. And the FAA plans additional runway safety meetings. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 773 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, he's been an air traffic controller, and now he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening from beautiful downtown Chicago, where it's uh, it's dark. <laughs> It seems to get dark much earlier these days than it used to. So I, I hope my lights are not going out. I, I hope it's the time of the year, but I'm still working on it. All right. Thanks for that insightful uh, <laughs> weather report. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. And we're back. Hey, hello, everybody. Great to be back here again. You were off flying a helicopter last week, weren't you? Uh, I was, yep, absolutely. I uh, did my long IFR cross-country, so a couple of hours under the hood, and I could tell you when I got back, I was pretty tired. It's a long time to stare at the instruments. Yeah. All right. Well, we're glad that you're back. And pinch hitting for David Vanderhoof <laughs> tonight. <laughs> we have our main man, Micah. Hey, Micah. Hey, great to be here. And, uh, you know, not only am I a pinch hitter, I'm a switch hitter because last week I was pinch hitting for the West Coast and this week I'm pinch hitting for the East Coast. Yes, you are. It, isn't the World Series over? <laughs> great uh -oh. to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, our guest this episode is Tim Plain. He's a former combat aircraft pilot. Tim attended the Air Force Academy to get his degree and also find a way out of the Midwest where he had uh, spent his youth. He graduated in 1979, attended undergraduate pilot training at Williams Air Force Base. His first assignment ran, I guess, from 1980 to 1984, flying the North American Rockwell OV-10 Bronco. Tim spent a year at Osan Air Base in South Korea, couple of years as an OV-10 instructor at Patrick Air Force Base. But then Tim went on to receive his F-16 training at Luke Air Force Base in 1985, and he served as a frontline F-16 pilot at Nellis Air Force Base through 1987 when he separated from the Air Force. Since his Air Force career, Tim has spent most of his working life in the investment world, for the past 10 years, he's been a researcher and writer of newsletters focusing on the stock market. And he's also blogging these days at landflyordie.substack.com. Tim, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. 
I am really happy to be here. This is a fun crew, even though it's just been a few minutes. And I, I need some joy after attending the Air Force Army football game on Saturday. So. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah, that didn't work out yeah. too well. Well, in our conversation this episode with Tim, we're going to focus on the OV-10 Bronco, which is a very interesting aircraft. And we'll talk about some other things as well. But, uh, Tim, do you still dream about your Air Force days, or is that kind of a thing of the past? I do. Um, what I find I miss most is pulling Gs. I just miss the pain. No, I felt so good. Um, but the other thing is, since I've started Landfly or Die, the Substack is I think about the posts I want to write about, more and more memories keep coming back, which is kind of fun, just the details of the memories. And plus, you know, now we have the internet, so I can look up stuff that, you know, was just all in my head <laughs> 40 years ago. It's amazing how much stuff's on the internet now that once upon a time was classified. Yeah, that lets you check up, see, uh, check up on your memory, on your recollection, yes. I guess, from time to time, I'm sure. I wish I had something like that, but uh, nothing online documents the crazy stuff I did in my youth. Well, isn't that what your jail record was for? <laughs> Shh, you're not supposed to say that. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay. All right. But first, before we uh, get into it with Tim in depth, we're going to talk about some of the aviation news from the past week. So are you guys all ready? Yeah. Mainly ready. Ready from the West. <laughs> First item comes from CNN. This is pilot accused of threatening to shoot captain who tried to divert flight for a medical emergency, officials say. And, well, we have here a, a commercial first officer. He's been indicted by the Utah grand jury or by a Utah grand jury for an August 2022 incident. So this happened more than a year ago. And at that time, he allegedly threatened to shoot the captain if the flight was diverted for a passenger medical event. I haven't seen anything, any reporting on what that medical event was. But this guy's now been charged with interference with a flight crew. Now, he was the first officer, and um, according to the Office of Inspector General, he told the captain that they would, or that he would shoot him multiple times after they had this disagreement regarding this possible flight diversion. Um, this is, oh, one, one other key aspect of this is that he was authorized to carry a gun on board the plane, and this is under the Transportation Security Administration's Federal Flight Deck Officer Program. And we'll talk about that some uh, in a bit here. But uh, the, the off-duty pilot in the jump seat Trying to shut down the engines wasn't bad enough. Uh, this is sounds like another crazy kind of event. Yeah, this is really shocking, especially coming on the heels of the uh, the other one. Turns out he's a, a local kid, if you will. He uh, attended Woodside High School here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Learned to fly at the San Carlos Airport, which is about four miles from the airport that I teach at Palo Alto. So sometimes I fly out of uh, San Carlos. Had his uh, private by the time he was age 18, as did his uh, twin brother. And the two of them uh, ultimately ended up in the Air Force. Uh, he went to Embry-Riddle for four years, got a bachelor's in aerospace science. Uh, he was commissioned as an Air Force officer, logged more than 1,400 hours, including flying combat missions over Afghanistan. Uh, left uh, active duty about nine years ago, joined the Air Force Reserves, where he is a lieutenant colonel. 
and had still been serving as a lieutenant colonel up until uh, just a few weeks ago uh, when this uh, you know came came forth and i think it came out because uh, they asked for um his attorneys asked for a, a delay uh, so that the, they could get him back from Germany, where he was you know, currently getting trained uh, to do some things over there for the Air Force Reserves. So it, it is really stunning when you look at someone who has such a, you know, a kind of stellar background to think, holy cow, how did this happen? You know, where, where, where did things go off the rails? Uh, you know, this the, the, the interfering with the flight crew can get you up to 20 years in prison. Um, yeah, I would have to imagine that there may have been, you know, some, some mental health issues that they'll probably try to, uh, to bring up. Um, but you know, I think the real problem is <laughs> this was not just an idle threat. <laughs> this guy had a gun with him and was able to back up his, uh, his threat. And so it had to be taken very seriously. And I just don't know, you know, what, what's the proper balance for, you know, how do you treat with somebody who apparently has some mental health issues versus someone who's actually got a gun with them, you know, when, when they're, when they're doing it. Yeah. We were talking about balance last week, uh, uh, in, in tight situations. And I mean, I've flown with some captains that I wanted to kill, <laughs> uh, or I felt like I wanted to kill or some FOs who were jerks. I mean, but uh, it, we're not, thinking literally we want to do that. We're just going, oh, my God, please get me away from this guy. You know, I, I mean, but it. I think the fact that this fellow, uh, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but uh, the fact that he was a, a light colonel in the Air Force Reserve, um, maybe he was a little used to people following his his commands. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know, but still, I, I mean, adding a gun to any situation, I don't care if you're in the cockpit or you're in a car or you're, you're walking into a Seven Eleven or a Starbucks, it can't possibly do anything except make the situation worse. Now, now wait a minute, Rob, just, 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 just hold on a cotton pick a minute. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because this guy, he wasn't just some pilot carrying a gun. This was a federal flight deck officer. Mm-hmm. Okay. This this gentleman went through an incredibly tight selection process mm-hmm. that is very very uh, difficult, and it was and 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 certainly not an easy thing to get through. He was screened. He was trained. It's I can't remember. It's a one or a two week program, uh, and uh, and was issued uh, a handgun, uh, probably a Glock nineteen to carry with him for emergencies uh, in the cockpit. And this happened after nine eleven when a handgun. Uh, probably could have helped out uh, under the circumstances mm-hmm. that were there. Uh, so how can you say now, now? Now this person ended up. I'm guessing you know my, my joking thing. He either really didn't like the guy that was having a medical problem, or he had a hot date and didn't want to divert. But but uh, but you know th- there was a reason for him to be carrying a gun. Is, what's the, in the security cop? of the medical problem? Did it actually justify a diversion? And the captain decided he didn't want to because he had a hot date that night. No, I thought the captain was the one that wanted to divert. the diversion. Yeah, and it was this co-pilot uh, who didn't. And the FO didn't want to go along with so, it. So it's uh, not just the fact that he was carrying the weapon. If you read the indictment, it says, quote, did use a dangerous weapon in assaulting and intimidating the crew member. That, to me, doesn't sound like he left it locked in his case. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to say, Micah, is that I, I agree with you um, up to the point that the guy obviously lost a few screws along the way. 
and in this situation felt like he wanted his way so badly that it was time to pull that, that handgun out of the holster and point it at the captain, which, let's be serious, I mean, if he'd actually fired it and it had gone through the, the side of the fuselage, it would probably depressurize the airplane anyway. But but again, it was like it was like what we were talking about last week with that uh, that uh, the fellow that that tried to pull the engines on the uh, uh, the Horizon flight. Um, he had gone through incredible training as well. God, he was a captain for Alaska on a seven thirty seven, and you'd think, how much better you know what better you know reference could you get than something like that? But then what happened? To both of these guys, um, because what the guy did that the Alaska pilot did was almost, you know, I don't know, would you say it was worse than what this guy, I don't know if this was, maybe they're equally uh, insane, uh, but again, all I'm saying is that when you add a gun, whether he was qualified or not to, to hold it, um, it just it, it you know it, it just seems to make every situation worse uh, so but that's just my thought or, or the potential for making the situation worse and, and there had to be more going on because apparently oh, sure. he was removed as a commander in uh, february uh, 2022 uh, and that was apparently not directly related to uh, a suit that he brought against the uh, the pentagon and the uh, secretary of defense immediately after that so yeah, it, yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah. yeah clearly, I think there's 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 more to the story. But let's talk a little bit about this federal flight deck officer program a little bit. And and as Micah mentioned, this came out of well, it came after nine eleven. It was authorized as part of the Homeland Security Act of November two thousand two, and it's a program where pilots. Uh, flight crew uh, on passenger and cargo aircraft uh, can um, be vetted and trained and can act as law enforcement officers, but with limited limited powers. They're they're there to defend the flight deck against um, uh, criminal acts or um, terrorism, air piracy, that kind of thing. They have no other legal status. They cannot arrest people or do anything else other than defend. And their jurisdiction is limited to the cockpit. Right. Originally, uh, the TSA did the training, but uh, for for a while now, the uh, Federal Air Marshal Service provides the training. Actually, they started doing that in 2005, I believe. There's an interesting um, little, little fact in, uh, there's an ALPA fact sheet on the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program. We'll put a, that, put a link to that in the show notes. But they mentioned in there that the, the federal cost to have a deputized FFDO, Federal Flight Deck Officer, on board is approximately $17. I wonder how they get that. And the cost incurred for, for each federal air marshal on board is approximately $3,000. So with all these other reasons for, for doing this, one is, you know, it, it doesn't cost as much. Of course, a, a federal air marshal has, uh, you know, is authorized to do a lot of other different things. And I think it probably has more training. But if you want to be an FFDO and you're a pilot, you can kick it off. There's an online questionnaire 
that you can take to uh, initiate the process, which uh, we'll actually put a link to that in the show notes as well. There's no way to see what the scope of the questionnaire is in advance. You have to start the questionnaire. And the, the first question is, are you a U.S. citizen, which is an obvious first question. But I was too chicken to uh, proceed any deeper into the questionnaire myself to see what's in there. I wonder whether most of the people that are federal FFDOs were people that already had some uh, you know, firearms training. Uh, I would think it would lend itself to those people. But I wonder how many of them actually had zero training until they... They, they went through the uh, FFDO training. Mm. I can tell you for sure that they are not required to have uh, original firearms training because um, uh, I, the FFDOs do not announce themselves. And, you know, they, we, we don't know no, you, what pilot right. is or no, is not. But I do know a pilot who is an FFDO, and uh, he had never handled a, a sidearm until he enrolled in the program. Sure. And I, I didn't say they were required. I was saying I just wondered if people that, w- that had f- you know, previous handgun life, you know, or training Experience, or firearms yeah, training yeah. might be more inclined to to want to sign up to do that. But that's interesting. I, I again, I wonder what the what the breakdown is. Although we'll never know. But right, right. but you know, both of these we we don't hear about FFDOs anymore. Haven't heard about them for years. And nor do we hear about Sky Marshals anymore. We, we know they're all there somewhere, but they're of absolutely. Uh, no news value at all to anybody, uh, except in a situation like this, unfortunately. And the one other thing to, to, to bear in mind, based on something that was said earlier, is that while we don't know for sure, the odds are that both the Sky Marshals and the FFDOs are carrying what's known as frangible ammunition, meaning that the bullet breaks up into a bunch of pieces when it hits something. It's not going to penetrate the fuselage. It's not going to penetrate anything other than a person. Uh, it's a specialized ammunition. It's rather expensive. And it's not an armor-piercing am- ammunition. It's not a copper-jacketed ammunition. It's designed to take down an individual because that's what you're dealing with, not to do any other kinds of damage like that. Yeah, interesting, because I always... When, when this first originated, when this concept first came up, I, I was just wondering, God, why, why do you want to be firing a gun inside an airplane at 30,000, 40,000 feet? Uh, so I didn't know about this specialized ammunition. That's kind of No, I didn't either. That's interesting. Um, so we learned something. But then, of course, Micah has more experience with that. I mean, he probably needs a weapon just to go outside his door because it's Maine and there are probably bears or elks or something walking down the street, aren't there? Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, ha- I hate Mises to pieces is what uh, I think you said on Captain <laughs> Kangaroo. And what's that big rack of antlers on your hat anyway? I'm wondering about that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, let's move on. Let's talk about Vans Aircraft a little bit. This is from AOPA. And um, the founder and CEO of Vans Aircraft, which, of course, is a, a major kit plane maker, Dick Van Grunsven, Van. He posted a video on YouTube and said that uh, Vans, the company, is facing serious cash flow issues and must be addressed for ongoing operation. He says, we are confident we can work through the situation, but some changes are required. Candidly, since early September, Vans has only been able to continue operating through loans of operating capital made by he and his wife, he said. Uh, so it's a... It's a um, cash flow problem that they're experiencing. 
Vans is, of course, uh, as I mentioned, is, is a big player in the kit-built industry. So this is kind of distressing. Well, it's a shame that this has come up because, I mean, if you if you go to uh, any of the major shows, God, Oshkosh, I mean, that his name is practically in lights. Uh, everybody knows is either building a Vans of some kind or knows someone who's building one of these airplanes and uh, or, or knows somebody that's owned one or flown one. And uh, it's, it's, it's like saying Cessna or Piper or anything else. And uh, so, it, it, but it's a shame if you look at some of the reasons that Dick uh, highlighted, uh, like parts being outsourced to somewhere outside the United States. He didn't say what what country, uh, but that uh, they use some uh, unapproved uh, primer uh, coating on them, and a lot of them had to be replaced. And uh, for a small company, you you have one comeback, okay, that, but he didn't give the number, but it sounded like more than just a couple that came back. And then there were the drilling of the the frames uh, issue, and... uh, yeah, on that one, apparently some holes were supposed to have been punched, and instead they were laser cut. And some customers said that there was some cracking around the laser cut holes. And sort of ironically, the, the company determined that the laser cut parts were usable, but still many customers really wanted the, the regular um, punched hole parts um, in fact, there's a quote that says, more than 1,800 customers are currently affected by this issue, some of whom have received more than one kit. So people are, you know, kind of expressing their, you know, their issue with that. Um, Vans also talked about supply chain issues, increased demand uh, during COVID, shipping costs are higher. Vans hired and trained more staff to work on these increased volume. And then we have these uh, these other problems that Rob just mentioned. So cash flow is, you know, a lot of people don't really think about or understand cash flow. People tend to think about profits, you know, how much do they make in profits. And profits is an interesting number. But when it comes to can you operate the business each and every day, cash flow is, is really a much uh, stronger indicator of that, much, much more important, especially to a well, not not especially to a smaller company, to any company, in fact. If the outflows are greater than the inflows, uh, th- then you've got a cash flow problem. And that can be terminal. A lot of companies fail because of cash flow. Well, look look at how close Boeing came to some serious issues a few years ago when they had all of those 737s sitting on the ground everywhere within 50 miles of Seattle. Uh, and, and and the issues with the 787s that you can't log it as anything until, uh, you know, the transaction is until the closing is done, which means you get the airplane and I get the moolah and I can't put it in the bank and use it until I actually have it. Uh, and if you get enough of those, it could be just as destructive to a, a, a large corporation as a little one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can't make payroll. That's a big issue. If you can't pay your suppliers, they're not going to be happy. Uh, and from my experience in the in the you know stock market investment world, you know, when they put out that ongoing concern note, that's just kind of a, almost code words that we're going to declare bankruptcy soon. Yeah, it may come to that. 
Uh, I hope it doesn't. We should mention just how significant they are to the industry. I think that uh, when you look at experimental aircraft, it's got to be at least 15% of the fleet here in the U.S., maybe maybe as high as 20%, but certainly at least 15 And Vans, I'm pretty sure, has more than a 50% share of the experimental aircraft market. So in a sense, they are the experimental aircraft market. And they've really done a lot of great things for the aviation industry. A lot of the innovation has come from experimental aircraft. And a lot of the um, you know early kinds of things that we've seen years later in certificated aircraft started in experimental aircraft because people were able to experiment with them. Uh, and so it, it really is a, a major force uh, in aviation. And anybody who wants to you know, hear an interview with uh, with Dick. Uh, we had him on back in episode 376 about eight years ago. Anyway, great guy and, you know, certainly a very formidable, uh, you know, force within aviation and especially within experimental aircraft. Uh, he did say that uh, he thought there was going to be some price increases, and I suspect that that's how they're going to get, you know, make their way out of this is they're just going to have to raise prices. Mm-hmm. You know, the feeling of uh, those in the uh aviation industry, you know, for this company is so great that maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll see a a, a GoFundMe or, a, you know, or, or some kind of a, a page like that where folks could help out. But I don't know if it'll come to that. All right. We, um, we've been talking uh, for a couple of episodes about the Amsterdam Schiphol plan to reduce the number of flights in 2024 and how... JetBlue, who's relatively new to that airport, um, has asked the United States Department of Transportation to take some action to protect its interests. JetBlue, of course, uh, believes that they stand to lose their rights to fly into the airport, while other airlines that fly in there will be less impacted. Well, now the DOT says that the Netherlands is violating the United States and European Union air transport agreement. Now here's a quote. The department orders KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, Martinair, TUI to file with the department within seven days of the service date of this order any and all of their existing schedules for air transportation services, including code share, common branding, and extra sections between any point or points in the United States and any point or points not in the United States. So that's all they've done to this point. Uh, We can speculate, you know, what that information in hand might lead to. But at least at this point, the DOT isn't taking anything other than demanding, I won't even say requesting, demanding that uh, those airlines provide that information to the Department of Transportation. I don't know. Things are, uh, it feels like the, uh, you know, the forces are kind of um, circling and preparing for battle. Well, certainly some of the U.S. airlines have been hit disproportionately hard. JetBlue in particular is upset that they would have all of their flights eliminated out of uh, Amsterdam. And yes, certainly they have, they're a relatively new player there and they've got relatively few flights. Uh, But still, it sounds like the uh, reductions were not implemented uh, evenly across all the different air carriers, and a number of the air carriers are just being kicked out. (laughs) So I think uh, it's probably easy to question, is the Netherlands favoring KLM over uh, all these other airlines? So yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, there's a call for the U.S. to, to retaliate. 
Yeah, but you know, I, I, I mean, KLM is getting hit too. Uh, they're they're not getting out of this scot free uh, because the goal again is not to prevent other airlines from uh, landing it in Amsterdam. It's to reduce traffic overall, and so you know, really, I mean, what what, what are the Dutch care if uh, the people at JetBlue are angry, uh, or or the folks at uh, you know, some other airline are angry. They just want to see less airplanes coming into the traffic pattern because of uh, environmental concerns, noise and pollution and uh, that sort of thing. So, but again, it, you know, whether they violated this, this uh, agreement or not, it, it just seems as if the Dutch government really doesn't care. Well, one of the points that the the author of this One Mile at a Time article said was that even if the ban goes into effect, that the Dutch government's reaction might be, who cares? It doesn't matter because the whole point of this was to cut down on environmental pollution. And so, okay, so now we're cutting down even more. This is obviously meeting our goals. And, you know, that, that makes sense to me that that's the direction that it'll probably go in. I don't think it will become a, a big issue. What it's going to become is a terrible inconvenience to travelers. Well, if you want to talk about the United States and European Union Air Transport Agreement, which the DOT is saying um, has been uh, violated, uh, you have to talk about balance. Here we are again, Rob, with, with balance. Something I'm very good at discussing. Yeah, <laughs> balance. This claimed violation, it falls under the balanced approach philosophy. Now, there's an IATA fact sheet. It's called the balanced approach to aircraft noise management. And it says that this balanced approach requires that all available options be evaluated to identify the most cost-effective measure or combination of measures to mitigate a specific noise problem. It says uh, each new generation of aircraft is quieter than the previous one and the noise footprint surrounding airports has reduced, but increased flight operations have counteracted some of these benefits. These factors are driving some local authorities, here we go, to impose noise operating restrictions at airports, either in terms of annual movement reductions, aircraft type bans, or night operation bans. Now, it says that most of these restrictions are being implemented without ICAO's balanced approach, B and A are capitalized, which requires that the noise concerns of local residents be balanced with protecting the huge social and economic benefits of the airport's connectivity uh, for the whole country. So this balanced approach principle was adopted in 2001, uh, and it's included in Annex 16, Volume 1, to the ICAO Chicago Convention. And it's enshrined in an EU regulation, and it's also stipulated in where? The USA-EU Air Transport Agreement. So it all comes together. But this, this balanced approach is one that the signatories to this have agreed to take when it comes to noise reduction and to look at it from sort of a holistic kind of... Uh, kind of context. So this is this is the agreement that um, the United States, Netherlands, many others have have signed on to in the past. Uh, and they say that that's not being operated properly here. So uh, very interesting. And uh, of course, we have some links to the 
information about the balanced approach and what the IATA says about it and, and others as well, if you want to dig into it. But that's the, well, that's where the, they're going. That's where JetBlue and the DOT are going to try to address this issue. Now, as we said, they're asking for this information, what they're going to, about the flights and all that, what they're going to do in a sort of a retaliatory fashion, you know, we'll see. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just use it as a negotiating tactics, a leverage to try to change the situation to a little more the liking of JetBlue. We'll have to see. And I just want to point out to our listeners who aren't able to see this, that that was absolutely the best explanation of balance I have ever seen or heard because Max did the whole thing while standing on one leg. <laughs> Balanced. You know, flattery will get you nowhere, Micah. <laughs> so we'll see. Hey, you know, I don't know if it's just puffing up or if this is going to precipitate a something, you know, a serious air transport disagreement. I don't know. Stay tuned, I guess. All right. One final news item. Uh, this is from Reuters. Uh, this is on the FAA holding runway safety meetings. Max Trescott, uh, what are these meetings all about? Well, I think that there's a lot of concern about some of the incidents that we've talked about right here on this show, which is runway incursions and aircraft that have been too close, uh, what the ATC folks would refer to as a deal. And many of these uh, have been with aircraft close to the ground, and the FAA has long said that they expect that the next major um, crash, if you will, is going to happen close to the ground or next to a runway or things like that. They've pretty much eliminated most of the problems in the air, but it's the runways where they're uh, seriously concerned. And they announced a series of meetings back in, I can't remember, it was March or May, it was earlier uh, in the year to try and address this issue. And what they're now saying is they're going to have more of these meetings. And so initially, I believe they set up meetings at 90 uh, different airports, major airports in the U.S., and now they've added to that list. And the goal really is to uh, have people at each airport uh, come together, talk about what the unique issues are uh, for that airport, what are the uh, you know the hot spots, the potential uh, problems, and what are some potential solutions to it. So the FAA is working very hard to try and reduce the number of these incidents that we unfortunately keep talking about. And it seems as if they're on the rise. I think partially, uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, pilots were not as experienced. And so when they finally got back in the cockpit, they weren't doing quite as well as they did. Controllers have also uh, had had issues as well. They're grossly understaffed. And so a lot of them are working overtime and are probably tired. So I, I think the FAA is concerned that we have a system that's just a little bit more fragile than it has been historically. And they're just looking for any possible way to, to help uh, you know, make things better. Now, the article says that these uh, 16 additional runway safety meetings, at least the way I read it, uh, are going to be accomplished uh, by the end of this year, 2023. I don't know if the original 90 safety meetings are also supposed to be accomplished by the end of this year. That would be an awful lot of meetings, <laughs> you know, for by the end of this year. Or, or if these 16 have sort of moved to the, you know, head of the line, as it were, to to get done. But uh, those are supposed to be done by the end of the year. And there's 90 others. So that's, what, 106 total runway safety meetings. That's a lot of meetings to, to attend. You'd think that would take kind of a while. 
Especially depending on who's running them. Uh, I, I mean, because to me, if if the uh, the local airport uh, tower uh, manager or tracon manager is uh, no, I guess in this case it would be the tower manager uh, is is kind of running them. It's you know kind of problematic as to whether that's going to going to be effective because uh, the people that are actually working the traffic of course, don't realize that they're making these mistakes until they've had these close calls. But, you know, their boss coming to them saying, don't do that anymore. You know, you guys got to get it together, pay attention. You know, they go, oh, okay. You know. But I think if, a, if an outside person, and I guess I was trying to figure out how closely the NTSB might be involved in this, which, of course, it can't be too much because they don't have the people uh, to to handle these meetings, so I, I guess I'm just wondering. Uh, I, I'd love a little more info on how they're actually going to structure these uh, these uh, runway safety meetings. Because I've been at some, a number of them, and uh, you know, if you've got the right person in charge, people listen. But you know, if it's the same old, same old, it can hmm. be a little less effective. Rob, maybe you can uh, volunteer your services and help out. Well, Mike and I are going to do that. We're we're going to be a tag team. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll be the uh, straight man, and he'll be the funny man. Oh, I thought it was uh, the other way around. Well, whatever. <laughs> Who's going to know the difference? That's right. Uh, no, uh, but uh, it 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 is as you said. It's a lot of meetings, and I can't believe they're going to try and get all this done uh, before the end of the year. But uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe they will. I don't know. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, just because of the manpower to be required. Well, hopefully they do some good. I think that's the important thing. Yes. And it yeah. looks like somewhere I had read that the meetings are, you know, look at a lot, a lot of stakeholders. So, you know, it also includes airlines and other people that have uh, a role in this. So I think they're looking for broad participation. All right. Again, we're speaking with Tim Plain. Tim, again, thanks for coming on the show. We're really happy to have you. Um, in talking about the OV-10, maybe you can start off by kind of describing the aircraft. You know, what is it? How is it designed? What is it, it's, it's this interesting kind of twin boom. Yeah, it, it's uh, um, you got a center fuselage area, uh, two-person cockpit, front and back. And then behind it, you have about 12 feet of open cargo space with a little bit of a cone on the back of it. But So that's, that's just the cockpit. High wing, um, high straight wing. And then... Uh, um, Twin engines out on the wings, which the, the engine nacelles go straight into booms, which goes into vertical stabilizers, and then your rudder goes across the top of the two stabilizers. It's kind of a unique design. I mean, there's other um, aircraft with similar designs, but uh, kind of the for me, one of the most interesting parts of the design is your engine power was blowing over both your wings, the number I was told that basically 40% of your lift was generated from thrust. Also, your engines were blowing right on your rudders. So you had, if if you had to power up, you had rudder command no matter how fast you were going, which would sometimes get students to trick themselves into a spin, but uh, um, that's all right. Spin recovery is fine. <laughs> uh, and so you had, it, it was, you could do so many things with the airplane. Turboprop engines, twin turboprop engines, about 700 horsepower each. So you had lots of power. And um, 
variable props. So most of the power control was from the variable props. The props were reversible on the ground. The landing gear thought it was on the ground. You could reverse the props so you could stop the thing in about 500 feet if you slammed it down and hit full reverse thrust. In, in air, you could go to basically flat pitch on the props, which means you gave up 40% of your lift and you could do the old infamous elevator ride and piss the squadron commander off when you did it in a traffic pattern so you could dive at the runway and then, you know, few seconds before you touched down, you'd crack the power back on and just roll it on smoothly. But uh, you can make people nervous doing that. Uh, so it, the, the maneuverability of the airplane was just fantastic. You know, and it, it was it was all just, you know, as I used to say, the original fly-by-wire, you know, pulleys and bell cranks and uh, no, no assist whatsoever for any of the flight controls. Now you said rudder across the top. That's actually the elevator across the yeah, top. Elevator, joining the I'm two. sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah that's yes, okay. Yes. And then the rudders are going to be vertical behind each of the engines. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, but I'm dying to know about spins. Was this actually certified for spins? Was that part of the regular training? No, this had students spin. I had two spins. I had two students spin me. Um, one is we were just out with another aircraft, just flying extended trail, chasing each other around acrobatically. Um, we were at the top of the loop, just hanging upside down, and student just stepped on a rudder too hard, and the thing just flopped over into a spin. And I go, I got it. And, I mean, that's that's standard fighter instructor pilot term, right? That's the first one you learn. I got it. <laughs> so. Um, that was one. The other one was uh, first few rides in the airplane were just basic flight maneuvers. We were, I was flying out Patrick Air Force Base in Cocoa Beach, and we'd go up north of Cape Canaveral and, you know, do the basic stuff, you know, turns and acrobatics. And uh, um, one of the things you did was slow flight, you know, put the landing gear down and just so you feel how the airplane um, operated in a slow flight. And part of what we'd do is I'd pull one engine and make the student do a single engine go around. So one day I pulled the engine and it went into reverse thrust. It didn't stop at flat pitch. So the thing just flipped right over, landing gear down, everything down. I've got it. Flew it out again. I actually went up and did it again just to prove what, what had really happened. So I put us in the same condition, pulled the engine, it went into reverse thrust, and we spun again. And, uh, um, and then all of this, this we're about 5,000 feet above the ground and probably recovered in 1,000 feet. It was, it, it was an easy airplane to fly out of anything. But uh, yeah, that one, when I spun with all the landing gear and everything down, that was that was a little bit interesting. So could you purposely enter a spin? Were you allowed to do that? I mean, what you've described here are inadvertent No, no you were not. The only time you were purposely supposed to spin is in T-37 training and pilot training. Yeah, nobody ever. But that's why you did spin training and pilot training. So if, if you did do a spin, yeah. And like I said, these are both accidental spins with students in the front seat. And uh, I never spun it on my own. Uh, never even thought about doing that. It's um, The other thing I was going to say about it is um, it had a huge canopy. So you had great observability out of it. And if I remember correctly, and please correct me, Tim, if I'm wrong, but I think the canopy actually extended over the fuselage so you could look down on the sides. Isn't, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It kind of bubbled out, and the bottom of it was below your seat level. And it, 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 it bubbled out a little bit, so you could lean over and look almost straight down. Because the aircraft was designed for, for forward observation and, and, and control. Is that, is that, was that? Yes, yes. Well, the, the, the actual mission was forward air controller, which is basically coordinate between ground troops and, you know, fast movers with lots of bombs on board. And we carried pr primarily Willie, Willie Pete rockets, um, white phosphorus rockets that leave white smoke. 
So we could either, uh, part of the things we do is just talk fighters onto the target, you know, using ground references. The easiest way was to, you know, shoot a rocket down there somewhere and say, drop your bombs, you know, hundred yards north of my rock of my smoke or something like that. Um, so but a lot of, there was five radios in the aircraft, two uh, FM, VHF, UHF, and HF radios. Sometimes you'd have three or four of them going at once. One of which one? I think it was the HF. You could tune in like the local AM radio station, listen to music while you were blowing stuff up. <laughs> but, you probably never did that. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Hey, did you know that there are about 15 of those in service here in California or at Cal Fire? They use them for spotter aircraft. Yeah, I talked to one of those guys one day. They won't let them do more than 30 degrees of bank. <laughs> it's just like, I, just, I hate that stuff. I mean, the, the OV-10 is fully acrobatic. Uh, six and a half G, G limit. So you, you can pull some Gs. It actually had a G-suit port, but we never wore G-suits. It's considered a little wimpy just to wear a G-suit if you're only going to do six and a half. Um, but so we never did. Uh, generally... We had oxygen on board, but never, almost never used oxygen masks. So we just stayed below 10,000 feet. Uh, for military, if you went above 10,000 feet, you're supposed to wear oxygen. I think it's a little higher than that for civilian flying. Uh, so I'd take my oxygen mask when I do FCF flights or on cross-country trips in case I had to climb over some weather. But you came out of F-16s to fly OV-10s. Was that your choice? How did you end up in the, F- in the OV-10? I got an OV-10 straight out of pilot training. Oh, okay. I got uh, um, my pilot training class. We graduated in August of July of 1980, class 8007. My pilot training class was the first pilot training class to get to get F-16s. Before that, only experienced fighter pilots had gone into F-16s. But I was in the running for one, um, and but I messed up my formation check ride. I, uh, I, I flew I fl- in T-38s. I flew, I flew a perfect ride. I mean, I flew an absolute perfect ride. Um, I had a Colonel instructor pilot in the back seat. And then on the way home, I dialed in the wrong tack end station for about three minutes before I figured it out and busted the ride. So took formation check ride, you know, a couple of days later and passed it fine. But, uh, um, you know, that, knocked me down far enough in my class ranking. So I was fighter qualified, but there weren't enough fighter <laughs> fighter slots left to get as far down as me. So I got to go fly OV-10s for three years and then got into the F-16. So was it an assignment that you got to the OV-10 or was it ended yeah, up being yeah. your choice as a second? Choice? No, you, you didn't get any choice. When, okay. you, when you got out of pilot train, you went wherever they sent you. It, it was, I have no idea how things were decided. We had two F-15s, three F-16s, and a couple of A-10s, I believe. And there's about, uh, there's, I don't remember how many of us, 20, 20, 25 of us in the class. Well, these airplanes are remarkably capable. I mean, I, I'm just kind of surprised that the endurance you know, on them is close to five hours, you know, range 1,000 miles, speed. I don't know. What did, what did you see for, for speed when you were flying them? We generally flew around at 150 to 180 knots dive bombed at 250 max speed was 350 which i this, this one uh, you guys know what a functional check flight is hmm. yeah tell us a little bit about that okay functional check flights is when they do major maintenance on an aircraft um somebody takes them up and does a functional check flight where you check out the systems and um basically every squadron i was in there's two qualified fcf pilots and i was it for both ov10s and f16s i was one of them but 
you go up and um, you check out all the, you have a, cert, a profile that you're set to fly. You check everything out. You make sure everything works. Um, but part, part of the OV-10 FCF is you, the, the, the limiting airspeed on, on the aircraft was 350 knots. And part of the checkout, you climbed up to 15,000 feet and dove straight down until you got to 350 knots. And I always wondered if that was four. It's just like, look, to see if the wings stay on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you did this right out of a maintenance check? It was after they did major maintenance. This this, this was the maintenance. This was oh the check. Oh, my God, I, Max. I, I did it on F-16s all the I time. I think you ought to have that job. Uh, well, you know, Captain. I, I can't imagine doing anything like that. Yeah. And, after something came out of maintenance, but and part of the OV10 FCF is you shut the engines down one at a time. And I had over two years a half a dozen where the engine one of the engines wouldn't start back up. I'd single engine it back to the base. Was that difficult to do? <laughs> oh, just so heavy on the leg. You're just standing on that rudder. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only hard. It flew pretty well. Now it's like 20 miles offshore. Just went out off offshore, uh, you know, Cocoa Beach and did it. And uh, um, so you were. It wasn't very long, but yeah. It, you didn't really use a lot of rudder to keep it going straight and somewhat coordinated. Tim, do you know in what situation the Air Force would use, a, say, a, a, an O-1 and, a, and an O-2 and then an OV-10? Uh, I mean, I think they were all I, – I remember the O-2s were forward air control as well, but I, I can't remember if the O-1 – is that the bird dog or the L-1? Yeah, the, o, the O-1 was kind of the original one. And when I was flying OV-10s, there were also O2 squadrons that were doing forward air controller. We we trained, you know, we had both O2 and OV-10 training at Patrick Air Force Base. Um, the O2s were all stateside while all the OV-10s were overseas at that time. I guess they could probably stuff a bunch of O2s in the back of a C-5 and take them somewhere if they had to. Um, but they didn't really – I'm trying to remember. I don't think they carried the armament that the – that no, no, they, you know they they had rocket pods on board. Um, you know, with the OV-10, we'd uh, it had we had four machine guns, M60 machine guns, uh, and the little sponsons, and there's four bomb racks under there, and you know, we could carry you know 500 pounders if we had to. Um, never did, but mostly used rockets because we were doing marking rockets. But when I was flying in Korea, flew in Osan, Korea for a year, we flew armed every single mission. Probably most days we used rockets when we flew, because in in Korea in those days, for anybody to go to one of the um, tactical bombing ranges, there had to be a forward air controller there to uh, kind of keep an eye on things. Uh, the northern part of Korea, South Korea, P518, the prohibited area, you could not fly in there unless you were under FAC control, and we were the FACs, so we flew in there all the time. Bunch of dumb lieutenants just you know going buzzing along the DMZ. Wow, North Koreans and North Korean. We had, it had a, we had a radar warning receiver, and the North Koreans it lights you up with their SA twos. You didn't think they'd shoot one at you, but you always dove down into a, behind a mountain just to make sure. Why well, take the risk, right? No, it was uh, quite an amazing aircraft. Obviously, like Max uh, Max West said, still in service, but it, it was flown by the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines, one of, one of the, the, the few that uh, was picked up by all three services. And, and based on what you said in terms of landing it, it didn't often do a carrier landing, but it could if it had to. Yes, it could. Yeah, it was, it was a very multitaskable airplane. Um, one thing that I always found interesting, just, you know, that was my only time flying anything with propellers on it. Uh, but, you know, there were tur turbine engines. 
And um, we did not have auto sync on our turbine engines. <laughs> you know, it's you just uh, um, you'd look down at the RPM gauges, you know, and you just make them match RPMs. You know, okay, we're going to put them both at ninety three percent, and then the wow, 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 wow would go away. Um, after a while, your hand just started doing that. Your hand would just sync the props all by itself. Never even looked at the gauges. And then when I left OV-10s, I went to fighter lead-in school, which is in Alamogordo, New Mexico, flying T-38s. And it's basically do some combat maneuvers and drop bombs and stuff with a modified T-38. But I'm flying one day, and the instructor pilot is in uh, – in the back, he goes, what the hell are you doing with the throttles? And I looked down, and the throttles were like, well, you can't see them. They're like four inches apart, maybe five inches apart, just staggered. And I had synced the turbojets in the T-38. Well, my brain had. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, I didn't do that again. But it's just I, I, I was just always amazed what, what the mind can do, you know. Yeah, on its own. Yeah, sure, sure. I think those were Garrett engines. Yeah, on the uh, OV10. Yeah, were they pretty pretty reliable, probably. Yeah, ran, ran almost all the time. Um, I, I talked about I before we started. I was talking about I took it to a, took one to an air show in Rochester, Minnesota, and they sent a crew chief along with me uh, just because it was you know it was a getaway for the weekend. And when you when you were on cross country, when you stopped, you had to get out and climb on the wing and check your oil. Um, had this great big long. There's like a tube you pulled out uh, in front of the engine to see if there's any oil in there. And we pulled one out, and it was it was dry. Opened up the cowling, and the engine was just soaked in oil. And uh, um, the crew chief was with me, thank goodness. He goes, all the fittings are loose. There are probably a couple hundred fittings under there. And he just grabbed a wrench and started tightening them all down, just tightening all the fittings, tightening all the fittings. And we poured like 20 gallons of oil in the thing, and it went, you go okay. Let's fly the next leg and see how much oil we got when we get there. Oh. But uh, very, very few leaks after the second leg, and he tightened them up. Was that the longest flight you took in a OV10? No, I, I, I flew an OV10 from Tokyo to Honolulu. Wow. So, we landed a few times, but yeah. Yeah, I would think so. You were just moving the aircraft, or was it just yeah, they, just uh, one aircraft? No, they they moved the whole squadron uh, to. Uh, whatever that air base is on the top of Oahu. Uh, but so they had groups going over four pilots. Mostly it was the guys that were at Osan were flying them to Honolulu. But I, I was offered to do so. I went to Tokyo and me and we had, it was a four ship of OV tents. Um, and we flew basically for four days to get to Honolulu about, I don't remember how many miles were a thousand miles a day. They, they put extra wing tie. They put, Wing, they put fuel tanks under the wings as well as a big centerline tank. We had no navigation that worked over the ocean. So we had a C-130 flying along with us huh. to point us in the right direction wow. until we could get a visual or attack and lock on wherever we're going to land. And then the C-130 race ahead and land. And yeah. um, went to, uh, The first place was a little tiny island that had a Coast Guard Loran station. 28 Coast Guard guys there that were basically dropped there for a year. They, they get a C-130 in once a, once a month with supplies, and that was it. And then I went to, and we went to Wake, and we went to Midway, and then on a, into Honolulu. Do you have an autopilot, or do you have to hand-fly that whole trip across the Pacific? Fly. Yeah. We, 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 we would even do dead bugs. We got some board. You know what dead bug is? Fighter no. pilot term? 
Oh, okay. In my day in the bar, if somebody hollered dead bug, everybody was supposed to fall on their back and put their arms and feet in the air like they're a dead cockroach. <laughs> and the last guy, and the last guy standing was supposed to buy a round. Oh. No, nobody ever did that because it was really rude. In the OV-10, we'd do dead bug with the airplane. Somebody'd holler dead bug, and you'd throw the landing gear down and do an aileron roll and suck your landing gear back up. <laughs> I guess when you're flying across the uh, Pacific like that, you gotta you gotta do something to keep yourselves well awake and amused, right? Yeah, and we're we're at under ten thousand feet because we didn't take oxygen, or we we probably had we didn't wear our oxygen masks. Probably had them along just in case. So, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to fly a a FAC mission, a forward air control mission? You have the five radios in there. You're coordinating with a few people on the ground. I'm sure you're coordinating with individual other fighters that are up there you're probably coordinating with 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 the base back there at the same time you got to have your mind in like three different four different five different places all at once and you're flying the plane can you can you talk a little bit about what that's got to be a very complex mission it seems like it was you know you just did it every day um one of the interesting parts was you carried grease pencil and you took all your notes on the canopy on your right hand side You'd write down all the stuff the people on the ground told you and the call signs of the fighters that checked in, and you, you wrote it all down on a canopy. You'd come back after a mission, the whole canopy would be covered in writing from all this stuff. Yeah, you'd, get, you'd talk to the ground guys. You'd find out what they're th- what, basically where they needed ordnance placed. And then when the fast movers showed up, you'd talk to them, find out what kind of ordnance they had on board, and uh, – um, talk them in, basically talk them into the target either by marking or just, as we said, visually talking. And at the same time, flying the aircraft, um, deconflicting yourself from most, it's mostly F4s in my day, the F4s that were going to try to run you over on the way to the target and uh, shooting your own weapons. And um, yeah, it was, it's interesting to think back on it now because we were like 25, 26 year old kids doing this stuff every day. But it's just it, it's repetition in doing it, and uh, um, you know, I could, when I was an instructor, we would take um, it was an eight week course, and we would take somebody from new in the OV ten to doing a full fact mission with live fighters as their check ride eight week eight weeks later. And I would I would be the instructor in the back seat, but I'd also be like the the ground commander that was calling in for the uh, um, that needed the airstrike. So I you know talk to the, the student in the front seat like I was the ground commander, I need help. You know, this we're under attack. This is where we are. And you know, make it hard for him, make him try to figure it out. And we had we'd get uh, fighters, F4s and A10s would come um, spend a week at Patrick and fly with us. And there there's a great big bombing range south of Orlando in those days. So we we did all of our missions out there. Did you lose many O V tens? I'm not aware of any. Oh. Yeah, because the Air Force used to lose a lot of airplanes, usually in training. And uh, so I just wondered that, what did you call it, the dead bug? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, dead bug stuff. Dead bug. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I can just imagine you you losing an airplane and the commander saying, you were doing what? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. yeah I, I can. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I, I had plenty of emergencies that I called the emergencies. And a handful over the nine years that I probably should have declared an emergency, but I got myself in the pickle. <laughs> I go, I'll declare an emergency when I really have to, and uh, kind of snuck home. But uh, um, like I said, I landed 
uh, um, OV-10 half a dozen times with the engine out. Landed an F-16 once with the engine out. Uh, that must have been fun. Oh, gosh. That was pretty wild. Uh, I was going to say, I think I'd rather glide in an OV-10 if I had to than glide in an F-16. But, yeah, I'd love to hear about what it's like flying an F-16 glider. L over D max in an F-16 is 20 degrees nose down, 230 oh, to 200. <laughs> what was the gear speed? A landing gear extend speed? Oh, yeah, 300. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could, I, I remember one time accelerating out to about 400 with the landing gear down, and you just slowed back down to under 300 and sucked it up, and off you went. They build them, they build them tougher. Yeah, my, my, my single engine landing story is it's my big story, so we'll do it. Um, I was an FCF pilot in the F 16, and that was so much fun because you got a completely clean F 16, no bomb racks. No bombs, no gas tanks, and we never flew that way. You always had stuff hanging on your airplane. So you got a completely clean F-16. And you went out to the runway, and you put it in, you know, full afterburner takeoff, get off the ground, suck up the gear, and you stayed right on the deck till you got to 400 knots. Then you just pulled it straight up to 15,000 feet. So you went straight up for three miles. You're still doing 400 when you got there, but... And then you 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 know you're on your back you rolled over so you're going 180 degrees to the, the runway takeoff, and you pulled the engine from full after to, from full afterburner to full idle and back into full afterburner, and this one day it quit, it just woof, just wound down. So I dumped the nose, um, start the restart procedure that went really quick and nothing happened. So I called the tower. And I go, Tower, this is whatever my call sign was. I'm 15,000 feet over the field in an F-16. My engine just went out. And the tower goes, can you hold? <laughs> <laughs> and there's, uh, it was right in the middle of a red flag launch, too. So like 80 aircraft waiting to take off. Um, and I go, no, I'm in an F-16, and my only engine went out. And they go, okay. So from that point, it was just uh, um, one and a half full turns to be on the ground. And it was just, you know, airspeed into the runway, airspeed into the runway um, until I got there. And just, yeah, it's 20 degrees. No, we, we did simulated flame out landings a lot. You'd go to idle and you'd crack the speed brakes open like a quarter. And, but it, it's not the same. Yeah, when it's real, it's real, right? What was the descent rate like? Uh, I don't know. Several thousand feet a minute. I don't know. I can't. Uh, Twenty-five yeah, degrees. Pretty nose, high. Twenty-five degrees nose down at two hundred fifty knots. There's math that can figure that out. <laughs> Sounds more like ten thousand feet a minute. Yeah, it probably That's was. Funny. You know, it is, yeah. I, I was I was doing two fifty. You know, when I hit the overrun and landed at normal speed. To to steal a line from from uh, Top Gun, uh, you you were used to flying two fifty, three fifty, four hundred with your hair on fire. And did that make civilian aviation after you got out just seem a little too tame? Yeah, I, I just wasn't interested. Um, I've thought of a lot about that later in life. I just, I had got to basically strap on a high performance aircraft every day for eight years, almost every day. And I just wasn't interested, you know, tons and tons of my classmates went into airlines and made lots of money and, uh, you know, had great lives from it, but I, I just wasn't interested. Probably a mistake. I probably, I thought of, I probably, my next assignment, me and my last squadron commander did not see eye to eye, so I wouldn't have gotten a great assignment. But uh, um, if I would have been lucky, I could have gone to one of the pilot training bases and been an instructor pilot there. 
And I probably would have been really, I was a good instructor pilot. I was a really good instructor pilot. And uh, so I probably could have trained up a bunch of good pilots if I had made that decision, but I didn't. Hmm. Hmm. What motivated you to start this Substack? I've been telling these dang stories for years and everybody goes, you should write a book. I don't want to write a book, but you know, they, now they got Substacks or, you know, it's the modern version of blogs. So, um, I go, I'm going to just start it. Uh, had a young a woman I know here in town. Um, we talked a lot about stuff and she came up to me one day and goes, I want to, I want to work for you. You know, I, I have a, the way my work is set up, I own an LLC, um, sole member and I get paid by royalties, um, for my stock market writing. And I thought about it and I go, well, I can hire her and I can start the sub stack. So I, I have an assistant. She handles all of the, the back end stuff on the website and it's really good about cleaning up my work too, my writing and stuff. So we've, um, teamed up on this and just started it. And I, and I find it, what I found interesting once I got started, you guys are all aviation professionals. You know how things, how airplanes work, but I've really started with the basics, you know, like what's a knot, you know, what's, you know, just the very basic stuff, you know, how do we measure airspeed? What's indicated airspeed, true airspeed. Um, you know, my next post is going to be, you know, what, what's pulling G's? What does that mean? You know, everybody's seen it in a Top Gun movie, but what does it really mean? And so I, I break this stuff down to the basic terms. At least that's what I'm doing for the, to start. So when I start telling the, the fun stories, I won't have to explain every piece of jargon that I use in the story. And so you picked an interesting name for the Substack. Oh yeah. Land Flyer Die. Um, when I was in Korea, the, the, the squadron in Korea was, let's say 25 pilots, probably a dozen lieutenants, three or four captains, a major and a lieutenant colonel. I don't know if that is up 25, maybe there's 15 lieutenant, a bunch of lieutenants. Um, we had a radio at the, at the, at the command desk of the squadron. And one day there was this guy in Korea got foggy every morning. The fog always lifted by nine o'clock. So generally, unless there was a pressing need, we just didn't take off before nine o'clock, but this guy had an early flight. So he took off at six before the fog came in and he was, he was waiting to land and he was just whining on the radio, just whining about the weather and whining about all these things. And we had this really crusty captain in the squadron. He seemed old to us. I don't know, probably 30. Um, (laughs) But he picks up the microphone and he keys the mic. It goes, land, fly, or die. and just puts it down. And there's just complete silence in the room, silence on the radio, everything for like minutes after that. And I go, that's a good way to live your life. Right. And folks can find that. It's easy to find, right? Land, fly, or die dot substack dot com. So pretty, pretty easy. Very good. All right. Well, Tim, thanks so much for speaking to us, telling us some of the stories, telling us about the OV-10. I've always uh, been interested. I There is one I know at the um, Air Force Museum in Dayton. Um, there's an OV-10 there. And uh, a couple other uh, museums have, have OV-10s. I think not too many. Um, but otherwise, um, well, this uh, application you mentioned, Max, the... Uh, the firefighting in California. I, I don't know if there are other OV-10s still in service or if that's 
There's, I much. think in foreign countries, Thailand and Venezuela and places like that. So uh, there, there is a company in Las Vegas that's rebuilding. I don't know how many they have. It looked like a half a dozen in their hangar. Next time I'm in Las Vegas, I'm going to go visit them. Oh, yeah, you have to. Yeah. 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 Would you, uh, would you go up in one? Would you fly one? I would. Yeah, I think you would. All right. Very good. Thanks a lot, Tim. All right, guys. This is great fun. All right. What's up with the geeks? Micah, we're getting close to uh, an interesting event. Yeah, it should be uh, this Sunday that uh, after the show is released on November 12th, Brian and I are going to have a meetup in Tampa uh, and, or in the Tampa area. We're going to get together on November 12th at 4 o'clock in the afternoon at your pizza shop. It's a place I've never been. Brian says it's good. It's not his pizza shop. It's not my pizza shop. It's your pizza shop. And that's at uh, 1200 8th Avenue Southwest in Largo, Florida. And uh, would love to see you there. If you're in the general Tampa area, please stop by. Don't know how long we'll be there. We'll get there at 4 and stay until everybody wants to leave. So it could be a long night. Oh, well, that'll be a lot of fun. Even if it's just you and Brian, it'd be a lot of fun. But... uh... Get some listeners to join in as well, and that'd be terrific. Brian and I always have a good time, and his mom is coming too, and I'm really looking forward to meeting Mrs. Coleman. Yes, yes, that, that'll be a real treat. All right, Max Trescott, what's new with you? Oh, I just want to mention last week, uh, <laughs> episode 299, Aviation News Talk. Uh, coincidentally, flying tips from a military CFI for general aviation airplane pilots. So we had... Uh, a retired uh, U.S. Air Force uh, pilot talking about the way they do things in the you know in the military and how we can apply some of those things to uh, flying general aviation aircraft. And this week it's going to be Teta episode three hundred. Uh, nothing, not no 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 big celebration, no party horns or hats or anything like that. Well, you should at um, least get some cheering, you know, for that. <laughs> You know, you should you should t- borrow a vision jet and come out to Tampa, and we'll all do it live together, Max. You know, as you said, pizza, my mouth started watering. So it's a, the Pavlovian bell. You, you so All you had to say was uh, pizza, and I was salivating like a dog here. Yeah, you know, Max, if you do get that vision jet, could you stop by uh, Chicago and pick me up? And, and <laughs> hey, if we get to Florida, I'll, I'll buy the pizza. All right, I'm going to out you right now. I've given you two opportunities to fly with me. <laughs> Yeah, and you give me like 12 minutes notice to be halfway across the country. Uh, hey, hey, at least I offered you. <laughs> I know. Uh, Max I, Max East, I just thought of something I'd add uh, since I didn't put anything in the notes. Can I talk about it? Nah. Of course. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that likes to check and you know get permission for everything before I I say something stupid. Of course, that hasn't really slowed me down in the past. No, has it? it hasn't. <laughs> Not at no, all. I was going to say coming up at that uh, uh, came up on Jetwine today. Um, uh, there's a uh, a story about uh, my early years in um, uh, being a uh, business jet pilot, and uh, some of the people that have read it said this stuff's pretty funny. Uh, uh, like uh, if you didn't know that the citation, Cessna Citation 1 has a, a chemical toilet and the only way to get the toilet out of the back was to carry it down the aisle. Uh, 
towards the front door. And, well, the stories just got way better than that, too. So I'd invite anybody that'd like a laugh and uh, about how I learned to uh, learn how to fly business jets might, uh, might enjoy it. All right. And, uh, Micah, you had uh, a shout-out. You, want, you wanted to bring something up. Yeah, um, Ken Mattingly died. Now, uh, some of you may say, well, who's Ken Mattingly? Uh, any of you who have seen the film Apollo 13, he was played by Gary Sinise. And he was a man that, uh, that really, he was bumped from Apollo 13 because he was exposed to rubella or the German measles. But uh, in some ways, that might have been a good thing because he ended up saving the day and helped bring Apollo 13 back from that disaster as it uh, flew, was flying to the moon. But he was a naval aviator. He flew uh, Douglas uh, A-1 Sky Raiders and A-3B Sky Warriors. He uh, eventually, after Apollo 13, he got to fly as command module pilot on Apollo 16 with John Young and and uh, Charlie Duke. He commanded a couple of space shuttle missions, uh, STS-4 and and STS-51, which was the first shuttle mission that was flown by the, for the Department of Defense. And eventually, in 1985, he uh, retired from NASA as a two-star rear admiral in the Navy and uh, joined General Dynamics and worked designing with, working with the Atlas Booster Program. And uh, he was 87 years old on, on Halloween on October 31st, and he passed. And it kind of struck me because... Uh, as is happening, uh, as I'm aging, all of my heroes are dying, and uh, and I miss them. Yes. Well, what about us? <laughs> You're not dead yet. Right? Aren't, aren't Max, T, and I your heroes, too? Not my childhood heroes, my modern-day <laughs> heroes. Oh, okay. We're the childish heroes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, I like that. that that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, some listener mail. Brian wrote to us, not our Brian, a different Brian. This is a Brian from Israel. He says, I'm a technical writer who commutes to the office twice a week. The journey is 45 minutes each way, and your podcasts certainly do keep me informed, entertained, and awake. I'm glad we don't put you to sleep. <laughs> that would be the worst. Uh, he says, during the 60s and 70s, I lived in a suburb in the northeastern approach to Johannesburg International's Zero three left. The planes would fly over at around 7,000 feet, often lower depending on the weather. Many times my mom would be left alone at the dinner table while my dad, myself, and the dog dashed out into the backyard to see the planes coming in from the north and banking to the east for their final approach. I could tell the difference between 727s, 737s, 707s, 747s, DC-3s, DC-4s, and VC-10s just by their sound. On Saturday mornings, SAA's Junkers JU-52 floated noisily above Johannesburg on its sightseeing trips. In 1973 and again in 76, we were treated to a couple of weeks of Noisy, smoky, hot and high Concord testing. It was marvelous. He says, I never became a pilot, but I have been a passenger in many types of aircraft, including a balloon, a glider, and a tiger moth. I would love to go for a tiger moth ride. Uh, your recent episode, 770, Boarding the Airplane, brought a smile to my face, and I just had to share the following story with you. On a flight connecting through Madrid... We made the dreaded group boarding error. 
The gate agent looked at our boarding passes and told us that we were in Group 4. I smiled politely and asked, how do you know that? She pointed to our boarding passes and says, that's because there's no group printed on it. How stupid of us. How could we have not known that? Well, he says, it inspired me to write the following satirical guidance. So he's written gate agent guidelines for group boarding. And there's five rules here, five guidelines here. And the first is remove group signage. Ensure all signs related to groups or anything associated with groups are removed within a 500-meter radius of the boarding area. Number two, reconfigure information screens. Adjust the information screens to display passenger class designations unrelated to the passenger class designations of the flight being boarded. All right, number three, install retractable belt barriers. You've seen these. Set up retractable belt barriers within a 500-meter radius of the boarding area. Ideally, the meandering paths should lead to the same destination area. This can create an entertaining spectacle and give you a sense of control. Number four, disable PA system. Turn off the public address system and make announcements using your natural voice, ensuring they are barely intelligible to the assembled passengers. And then finally, number five, manage missteps. If passengers mistakenly attempt to board as part of a different group, express indifference, roll your eyes, and direct them to the back of any line. So all for now, he says, keep the blue side up. And that's from Brian. That's pretty entertaining. You know, that, that reminds me, uh, our guest uh, this week on uh, Journey is Reward with Brian is uh, Neville Bounds, who is a uh, co-host of Plain Talking UK, but also... The writer? No, you're thinking of Neville oh, no, Shute. I'm sorry. <laughs> he was named after Neville Shute, actually. But but he's a yeah. brilliant audio engineer, and we talk about why you can never understand what's being said on an aircraft or in the airports. And uh, it was just kind of a an interesting conversation about that, and it sort of made me think of it when he talked about disabling PA systems. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to that. I've I've got a, f- a few episodes to catch up on. But, yeah, I've always <laughs> – the, the PA announcements on most aircraft are just c- completely unintelligible. I can't under- – maybe it's me. I don't know. Maybe it's my hearing. But I can never tell what's being said. Well, it's great if the speaker is right over your head and you, know, you cringe because the volume is so loud. <laughs> Part of the reason I wear earplugs uh, on airplanes yeah. is so that I don't have to you know, listen to announcements that are too loud right next to my head. Marshall posted a comment on AirplaneGeeks.com. He said, in episode 769, you solicited input from listeners who build model airplanes. Remember, Rob, we asked or you asked for that. Um, Marshall says, I started building plastic scale models at age 13, and I'm still going at age 57. I've had periods of inactivity along the way, but my current building streak has been going since 2009. It's pretty good. I specialize in 148th scale U.S. military aircraft from World War II through Vietnam, but I also dabble in some science fiction projects. So he sent us a link to his uh, Flickr photo album of uh, some of the models that he's completed, and we'll put that in the show notes. Take a look. He says he's currently building an F-4E Phantom II and also a Marine Corps PBJ-1D Mitchell, 
both in 148 scale. He says, I enjoy the podcast and keep up the work. Yeah, and his work is beautiful. I'm looking at the Flickr page now, between the painting and the decals, and boy, it's just exquisite. Yeah, but what what an art. I mean, it, it, I think it really is art. It, it Model building, good model builders are, are artists as much as any other kind of artist, I think. And Michelle wrote in, airplane seating research. We were talking about that. There are some references to this research here. This is from uh, the points guy. This is from a, a 2020 posting. Uh, shocker, math proves boarding planes is actually really efficient. We were talking about that, wondering if uh, when uh, airlines are evaluating different seating strategies, if uh, they ever do any computer modeling or any simulations to try to see what's best. Well, according to this uh, PointSky article, uh, it says that according to a study published uh, by the American Physical uh, Society, many airlines are getting at least one thing right about the boarding process. Now, he says, it turns out that the pre-boarding segment for passengers with children and travelers who require extra assistance is more than just a nice courtesy. It can speed up the entire boarding process by as much as 28%. That's sort of perhaps counterintuitive. The team studied airplane boarding procedures using a mathematical model, there we go, that was first introduced to describe Einstein's theory of relativity. He said uh, until uh, until about five years ago, he and his fellow researchers, this is the uh, uh, the study of the researchers, he and his fellow research, researchers concentrated on the efficiency of other airplane boarding methods, such as back to front versus front to back or by zone. Uh, but then uh, the researchers stumbled across a magazine article that described how some airlines were trying to speed up the process by letting passengers with no carry-on baggage onto the plane first. Uh, this is a quote. The idea of the article would be we should go with fast passengers first because more people enter the plane more quickly. We never tried that, separating into groups with different speeds. Counterintuitively, though, this researcher and uh, the fellow researchers found that boarding is more efficient when slow passengers get onto the plane first. I think that is counterintuitive. Many calculations later, it turned out that under any circumstances, and uh, he says, when I say any circumstances, it doesn't matter how much the fast group is faster than the slow group or what the airplane configuration is. Somehow, boarding slow passengers first is a little bit faster than boarding fast people first. So there you have it. Um, I can't explain it. But there it is. You know, they said that they used used uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. But I I wonder if that was Albert Einstein or Bob Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, Bob Einstein, the comedian. It sounds more like that one, you know. Very interesting. Can I add one one point about the model building thing? Oh, sure. Um, I'm just curious for all the people that still build models that built them as kids. How many – I just like a show of hands – well – Figuratively, uh, how many people uh, grew up thinking that the uh, German airplane we were talking about was actually the Junkers? How, how old were you before you realized that it wasn't pronounced Junker? Because uh, I always thought as a kid, why would somebody want to fly a Junker airplane? I, I know. 
Okay, I was 28 before I got the point, but anyway. Oh, you learned early. I, I think I learned when we were doing a broadcast from under one at the, uh, at the museum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, anybody said the junkers. Junker, junker. Uh, yeah. David was quick to, uh, quick to correct us. Yeah, I think I figured it out in high school when I started taking German, when I studied German. And um, well, at the same time, I learned that it wasn't ja, it was ja. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. I want to thank our guest, Tim Plain. And Plain, it's interesting. It's spelled P-L-A-E-H-N. We didn't mention that before. And that's pronounced Plain. And uh, look for his work, his postings at flylandordie.substack.com. Of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for every episode are there, but if you want to go straight to the ones for this episode, that's airplanegeeks.com slash 773. We have a lot of links this episode, uh, more information about the topics that uh, we talked about in the news segment especially. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, also, write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com, and we'll tell you how to get in. All right, Rob Mark, anything in closing? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, head over to Jetwine for uh, cool stories between Scott and myself and, uh, uh, you know, occasionally other people. Uh, but, uh, again, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight, uh, gents. I never, uh, uh, I, I don't want to take you for granted Although, Micah, I do take you for granted. Uh, but that's because I realize you you kind of work with a, a disability like the room that you're in uh, because no one else can see the, the mess that you're in. But like it, anyway, but it, it's fun working with you guys. We appreciate it. You just take me for granted because I'm stone cold. Oh, very good. I, I never thought of that. Yes, that's a good point. Max Trescott, where do we find you? Well, I'd like to invite folks to come listen to the Aviation News Talk podcast, where our mission really is to help people become safer pilots. And I believe for episode 300, you will hear me talking about something that confuses a lot of pilots that fly with uh, Garmin GPSs when they're flying instruments. And that is when you're loading an instrument approach and you're getting vectors from the controller, should you load it with vectors or should you load it with the IAF, the initial approach fix? And I'll talk about all the trade-offs and why the guidance you may have heard in the past no longer is the case for, for newer versions of some of these GPSs. So check it all out wherever you get your podcast at Aviation News Talk. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Even if you don't know what the heck you're talking about, like you mean even if he doesn't know what the no, heck he's I mean talking if I about? don't know he's talking about. oh oh I see okay I just curious yeah no seriously it's it's always interesting you always learn something well even well thank you and let me let me just mention or six out of the last seven days it's ranked number one in Apple Podcasts for aviation podcasts so there you go I, I it's the rankings bounce around all over but to be number one that long is pretty amazing so we'll take it very good. And Micah, our main man, how do folks uh, get a hold of you or reach out? 
Well, you can always uh, listen to me with uh, our former associate producer, Brian Coleman, on the Journey is the Reward podcast. And if you don't like that podcast, by the way, and you're going to leave negative feedback, leave it for us. Don't leave it for Max Trescott, which actually happened. Anyway, that's one place you can find me. And then I'm also on Twitter or X or Zitter or whatever you want to call it. And that's Maine Fly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state. Fly, like Max is going to go fly. Okay. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep blue side up. Nighty night. And for David, thanks for listening. (laughs) 